0: You know, when, uh, when Pastor Jennifer was praying, uh, an image came to mind. And uh, I'm going to share it. It's it's an image that I think God is inviting us into. Uh, but I know some of you are not going to like the image, but this is the image that, that came to mind. Uh, a couple of, well, number of years ago, I went skydiving. And I know some of us kind of think, why on earth would you voluntarily jump out of a perfectly good airplane? It, it makes no sense. And, and when you when you jump out if you're not going with someone else so some people will go where they go up to like 10,000 feet but they're strapped to a person who's done thousands of jumps and then they jump out i didn't start that way i started on what's called static line that means your your clip is connected to the plane your rip cord is clicked to the plane and pretty much as they hoof you out the cord gets pulled and it takes less than five seconds for your canopy, for the parachute to open. But those five seconds are so terrifying, I can still vividly remember grabbing at my harness, trying to separate and get that canopy open. And let me tell you, when you're falling in out of an airplane, there's only one thing you need, and that's a parachute. At that point, it doesn't matter about anything else in the world all you are focused on is that parachute. But once that canopy opens up, it is one of the most amazing experiences that any person will ever have. There is this serene silence when you're 5,000 feet above the ground and everything just looks like ants down below you and you're just gliding in in this, this tranquility. And the image that that comes to my mind as Jennifer is praying, is Christ enough? Is I believe God is inviting us. Just as I said a few weeks ago, there is always more. We we never consume, we never experience, uh, we never taste the fullness of God. And God is inviting us, as it were, to jump out of that plane and to truly experience what he has in store for us. And so with that image in mind, I really hope that you will be at the, the night of prayer and worship on the 8th of February. It's a night where we're just going to spend time together worshiping and spend time together praying. And I know for some of us, there's always that fear, is Brian or is the pastor going to make me pray in front of everyone? Am I going to have to stand up? No, not at all. There will be times of guided prayer. There, there will be little gatherings and, and there will be places that if you want to pray out loud, you're free to do that there will be plenty of place not to. So I really hope that you will be with us on the 8th of February. Full disclosure for you this morning. I had a sermon prepped, lined up, ready to go. Uh, It was a follow-on from last week, putting God first. I was going to kind of dive into some of the Ten Commandments as we worship God, as we put God first, as we worship through obedience, Uh, and I thought that was going to be the best sermon you have ever heard in your lives. And then on Friday, I was just doing some peaceful reading, and I'm not going to say that God said, but I came away with this real sense of, I'm about to preach the wrong sermon. And I felt what I thought was the gentle nut of God to say, actually, I've got something else that I want you to look at, and this is what I want you to bring out. And so this morning, I'm really just following what I believe is the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And I say that to you not because I want anyone to come and go, oh, Brian, you're so amazing. You just pulled out a whole new sermon. No, I did not just pull out a whole new sermon. God moved. And I do that because I believe God is inviting us into something incredible. And all I'm trying to do is humbly follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit is terrifying, especially for pastors following. Isn't that the interesting thing? Isn't that the scary thing? Even just that word follow. It's such a fascinating word. I mean, it's it's changed through history. You know, the word follow, historically, uh, it had a couple of meanings, and it meant sort of something that would logically follow in, in, in sequence. So two follows one, three follows two, four follows three as you keep going, so it logically follows in sequence. Uh, Follow also means something that occurs as a result of something else. Uh, Thunder follows lightning. We know that when we see the flash, we know at some point we're going to hear the thunder. Uh, Follow also means traveling along kind of just behind or just with. Uh, Some of you will see this at, at church most Sundays when you see Peter and Brianna's three boys following them. As, as Lincoln, Everett, and Levi, as they go down in age, follow on behind them. There's this idea of following, of going with. That's kind of been the historic meaning of that word follow. Today, follow means something a little bit different. Yes, it still includes those ideas, but today, follow has this fascinating concept of meaning I don't do anything except click follow. Follow. And so if somebody says, are you following so-and-so, your only question is, well, do you mean on Instagram or Twitter or, or what do you mean? And, and I can just observe whatever manicured pictures and presentation of themselves they put out. And of course, if they say or do something that offends me, I just click unfollow. <laughs> Follow. Is that what Jesus meant when he used the word So today I'm going to be preaching in a way that's maybe a little bit different. I'm looking at the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. But instead of picking out one passage, I'm looking at the disciples. And I want to have a look at a couple of the character traits of the disciples as I believe it refers to us. I believe Jesus invites all of us to follow him. I believe Jesus has called us to be his disciples, So, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, in fact, we read both in Mark chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 2. uh, And in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, we read, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. In the very next chapter, in Mark chapter 2, uh, in verse 13, Once again Jesus went beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. You know, the, the follow that's recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark, it comes from the Greek word "dute." Uh, It sounds a little bit like duty, and there's an element of that, but that's not what it means. Uh, Follow, or duty, was an imperative. It it was a command. It was an instruction. It's much like a mother who, in exasperation, calls out to her son and says, Come here! Do you think that child has a choice? The child might choose not to, but there will be a consequence. Now, Jesus doesn't shout, follow me, but there's still the command. There's still the imperative. There's still the implication that this is something to be obeyed and responded to. There's an expectation. This is why when Jesus says, come and follow me, those initial disciples get up. They drop everything and they go and follow. Two fishermen and one a tax collector leave where they are and they go. That's Jesus' invitation. Could you imagine? Just, Just picture it for a moment if Jesus said to his disciples, Follow me. And they pull out their cell phones and go, Sure, what's your username? No. There was the expectation they would get up. And that, of course, leads to the question well, how did they respond? And we read it right there in Mark chapter 1, verse 18. At once they left their nets and followed him. Mark chapter 2, with Levi, Jesus says, Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. You know, If you're visiting with us this morning in person or perhaps online and you've missed out the last few weeks, uh, over the last couple of weeks we've been looking at this idea or we've kind of got this expression that's loosely hanging over what we're doing called seeking revival. And it's this idea that we long to be revived by God, to, to understand what God calls us into and to live in light of that. I believe that revival takes place, like I said last week, when we put God first. And I think added to that, revival takes place when we start to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. And so, if we want to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to study the disciples of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's not going to be easy, it's probably not going to be very comfortable. But will it be worth it? Oh, you bet yourself. You bet. So as I look at the disciples, I think there are a number of character traits. We could probably spend hours looking at all sorts this morning. I want to pull out three that I think are really important for us. And because I'm Baptist and I can't help it, they all start with the letter P. The first word that comes to mind as I think about the character of the disciples is the word proximity. Proximity. It's perhaps not a word we use a lot these days. Proximity means to be close to something. Sometimes we might say close proximity, that's, that's a bit of a tautology. We shouldn't be saying that. Proximity already implies I am close. The disciples are to be close to Jesus. You know, in, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when we read of Jesus calling those disciples, those fishermen and those Levi, uh, as they immediately follow him, both of those are followed up by meals. As the disciples are together with Jesus, and Jesus is with them, and they're eating, and there's this proximity, uh, it, it, this calling isn't just a call from a distance, it's a call to be close with Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 2, we just read where Jesus is calling Levi and he says, follow him. And we read, Levi got up and followed him. The very next verse, verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I think sometimes we skim over that line almost a little too quickly. Because we've got the three disciples that are named so far. And so we think that the disciples are this little group. No, they're already a bunch of people following behind Jesus. And in proximity, they they have fellowship and they have a a meal together. In fact, later on in Mark uh, chapter 3, when Jesus names the 12 apostles... And you can go ahead and read that passage. He names the 12 apostles, but we read it's in the context that there's a great crowd following Jesus. There are a number of people around Him. And we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus called them that they might be with Him. Jesus called them that they might be with Him. Jesus didn't look at that crowd and say, okay, you 12, you're my apostles, and I want to see you every Sunday between 10 and 11 and occasionally on a Wednesday night. No. Jesus said, I want you to be with me. In everything I do, in everywhere I go, in every place I end up, you need to be there with me that they might be with him. I mean, could you imagine just kind of this absurd image comes to mind about Jesus saying that. But you imagine if if you're at a wedding and they get to the vows and the groom sort of turns to the bride and says, I promise to be with you in sickness and in health, in rich or poor, for better or for worse, for two hours a week. We would go, that's absurd. That's never going to work. That's not what marriage is. Yet somehow we think this is what we can do and still call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples are called to be close to Jesus. In fact, there's this this really cool picture in Mark chapter 3. It's an interesting scene. Uh, basically, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus gets accused of, of being demon-possessed, and they, they accuse him of being a little bit out of his mind. Uh, and so at the end of Mark chapter 3, we read that his family gathers, and, and we understand culturally and contextually there's, there's an idea of honor and embarrassment and shame. And so the family are there ready to kind of pull Jesus aside and sort of just check up on him. Are you okay? Are you okay? Uh, we're worried about your mental state and we're worried about the embarrassment you're causing the family. And so in Mark chapter 3, verse 31, we read Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around Jesus and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated. In a circle around him and he said here are my mother and my brothers whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother what Jesus is saying is those who are close those in proximity that's my family and and this is probably gonna blow some of your minds right now if if you call yourself a Christian then You're sitting with brothers and sisters right now, okay? I know sometimes brothers and sisters fight. I had brothers. We try to kill each other now and again, but we were family. You're family here in Christ. Jesus says, those who sit around, those who listen to my teaching, those who do the will of my father, that's my brother and sister. That's my family. We're called into proximity. We're called to sit at his feet. We're called to be close to Jesus Christ. Now, as I read through the Gospel of Mark, and I start to see this image in almost every single chapter, doesn't matter if Jesus is walking along the road, doesn't matter if Jesus is in a boat, doesn't matter if Jesus is in a house, but all the way his disciples are with him. And this is how Jesus taught his disciples. Yes, he spoke to the crowds. Yes, he he taught the vast majority and the vast numbers of people. He spoke in parables. But we read in Mark chapter 4, verse 34, and it's echoed elsewhere. We read, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. It's this idea of when I'm close to Jesus... That's when Jesus explains. In fact, elsewhere, that's why Jesus says he sends the Holy Spirit to us. Because the Holy Spirit will remind us of what Jesus has said. The Holy Spirit will remind us of the truth of God's word. That's only going to happen when we're close. When we are in proximity. When we walk. When we sit. When we abide. When we interact with Jesus. Now, of course, there's a warning in the Gospel of Mark. The disciples who are in proximity with Jesus, the disciples who are close with Jesus, start to realize, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't follow all of these traditions and and these rules that we've got in place. It's not that he's a blasphemer. It's not that he's deliberately breaking God's law. He certainly doesn't do that. But there are a bunch of traditions. And the disciples get accused by the Pharisees and the scribes and, and others In fact, in Mark chapter 7, we read the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And so they begin to ask about that and they challenge. You and I need to realize that when we follow Christ and we live as Christ lives and we do what Christ calls us to do, people around aren't always going to understand that. We're going to be accused of, of all sorts of things. Now, this isn't license. This isn't freedom to just go ahead and do whatever we please. No. The disciples were imitating Christ, and it caused confusion and insult. Now, brothers and sisters, not everyone's going to like you when you follow Jesus. We're still called to follow Jesus, we're still called to be like him, we're still called to proximity. But as I read through the Gospel of Mark, and I can talk about that for a lot longer, I don't only see this characteristic of proximity, of being close to Jesus. The next word that jumps out at me is the word perception. Perception or perceiving. And it has to do with the fact that the disciples were as dumb as mud. They really were. They did not always understand who Jesus was, what Jesus was doing. Perception means being aware of something, having insight or knowledge gained by thinking. Mark points out that the disciples seldom understood Jesus. In fact, I won't read them all, but in chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, we read about them not understanding. And that's quite a lot. In fact, sometimes we read about them just being amazed, and at other times being terrified. Because they're with Jesus and they don't know what's going on. In in fact, I I love in Mark chapter 9, they're so clueless about the mission of Jesus, they start arguing over who's the greatest. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 to 35, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, when Jesus was in the house with them, he asked, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and servant of all. And you would have thought that would be enough to explain to the disciples. No, because again, in chapter 10, in chapter 10, James and John come up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do us a favor. And Jesus goes, what do you want me to do? And the two of them asked, can you have it that one of us sits at your right and one of us sits at your left in your kingdom? You see, in their mind, Jesus was talking about a kingdom. Jesus was therefore king. Jesus was going to overthrow this Roman oppression, and he was going to set up his throne. And they were like, I think it would be a good idea to be sitting at his left and right. That's where the power is. They're so clueless and so confused, and Jesus kind of pulls them aside In fact, what I love about when we read of James and John, because we we sometimes blame just the two of them, we read a verse in the middle, the others were indignant. And we know the others were indignant because they were sitting going, why didn't we think of that first? Why didn't we ask Jesus? James points out, uh, sorry, Jesus points out that he didn't come to serve. He didn't come to be king in that regard. He came to lay down his life. He came to give his life and to serve others. And the disciples misunderstand. And why do I point this out? Because you and I are never going to understand everything there is to understand about Jesus Christ. We're never going to be able to answer every single question that every person has. But, but I love because Jesus still uses these guys. That gives me hope. Because if Jesus can use them, then I know he can use me. And that's not because I think I'm better than the disciples. I know that I'm often as clueless as the disciples. And yet Jesus loves. Jesus still calls. Yes, Jesus corrects. Jesus rebukes from time to time. But it's always done in that sense of you're my disciples. I have a, I have a mission for you. And I love you. And I still want you near to me. So even though we might not always understand everything there is to understand. We're still loved. We're still used. And we're still called to go. And of course it should be liberating for us. I just said we don't always have to have all the answers. I think we need to be a little bit like Peter. Uh, Peter occasionally acts as a spokesperson for the disciples. And I love this image in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 and onwards. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Now, the disciples didn't always understand everything. They didn't always get everything. But they clung to the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. And that's what disciples do. Disciples declare declare Jesus to be the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Disciples are close, in proximity. Disciples might not always perceive everything. But the third and final character trait that I see in the disciples is disciples have purpose. Disciples have a purpose. You and I, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we have a purpose. We have a mission. In fact, the final verse of Mark gives me hope. When I think that maybe I don't understand everything about Jesus... But in Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, we read, Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed His word by the signs that accompanied it. Jesus sends the disciples out to fulfill His purpose. We read a few times in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus calls disciples to Him and then He sends them out. To go and to preach, to go and to deliver, to go and heal, to go and serve, to go and minister. We have a purpose. Of course, that might lead us to go, well, what was Jesus' purpose? Jesus' purpose, summed up in the Gospel of Mark, uh, is twofold. The first purpose was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. We read that in Mark chapter 1, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark begins it by saying this, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus' purpose was to proclaim the good news. But the second element of Jesus' purpose was to die and to raise back to life. In fact, in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10, we read similar to Mark 8.31, he then began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus predicted this multiple times. Jesus understood his purpose was to proclaim and then to lay down his life. And Jesus gives his disciples purpose. Right back in Mark chapter 1, when he calls those fishermen, I love in, in, in Mark chapter 1, where he says to both Simon and Andrew, I will make you fishes of men. I will make you fish for people. And, and we kind of theologians have debated that for centuries of what that means and they've tried to draw out things from the Old Testament. And I'm not knocking any of that. I think there's great value to there. But when I read that, it excites me because it means Jesus knows how I'm wired. Jesus knows the skills and the gifts, the abilities I have. Jesus looks at these fishermen and says, you know how to fish. Great, we're going to go fish for people. I don't know what your skill is, your gift, your ability, your talent. Jesus does. And he will use that within his kingdom to proclaim the gospel and to fulfill his purpose. Jesus modeled that mission for his disciples and then he sent them out. In Mark chapter 6 verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Jesus modeled for his disciples. He didn't see the ministry as an inconvenience. He was moved with compassion to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to offer his life to them. And Jesus calls us to do the same. Now, you and I aren't ever going to die for someone's sins But Jesus still says to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Jesus sent out his disciples to minister and to serve. Jesus sends you and I out to minister and to serve. We're invited to follow Jesus. Following means being close. Following means discovering who Jesus is. And following means living with purpose. You know, As I kind of contemplate those three characteristics, I see an image that Mark paints for would-be disciples. It reminds me that disciples are real, regular, normal people. They get things wrong. They don't always understand everything. But they're invited to be close to Jesus, to understand who Jesus is, and then to go out with the purpose that Jesus gives them. My brothers and sisters, this is our Savior, who calls each and every one of us to follow Him. Will you follow Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Jesus, we acknowledge you as a disciple-making Savior. You came to earth to preach the good news of the kingdom, that our King is near to us, And that our King longs for a relationship with us. This gospel message is revealed in the fact that you laid down your life so that we might have life. Your blood saves us. Your resurrection gives us life. As we read about Jesus in this gospel account of Mark, we see Jesus that you commission us to continue the gospel proclamation ministry that you began. Help us to lay down our lives in order to make the gospel known. We're so busy with our wills and our kingdoms that, Jesus, your words in the Garden of Gethsemane, when you said, yet not what I will, but what you, Heavenly Father, will, those words strike us, and they reveal our misunderstanding of who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that even though we misunderstand Who you are, you still love us. You still accept us. You still call us. You still invite us. May we respond to that invitation. And as we sit close at your feet, may we truly discover who you are. And may we go out in obedience to you. For we ask this in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.